Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. Philip, great to have you here again this week. And Philip, each week on Two Ways News, we deal with a whole range of different subjects, sometimes Bible subjects, ministry, but sometimes we turn our attention to major world events. Yes, it's very important because there are huge world events taking place today. Events that are causing diplomatic tensions between nations. Yeah, wars even, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, where prime ministers are trading barbs, where whole populations of two nations are concerned are, f- are flinging insults at one another on social media and, and who knows where it might lead. Mm. And, of course, we're talking about cricket yeah, what else is there to fight about? <laughs> and the stumping of Johnny Bairstow. It has involved pages and pages on our newspapers, front pages on our newspapers, and comments from the prime ministers of the two countries involved. It's, it is so extraordinary that the English and Australians take cricket quite so seriously that a dispute over the laws of the game, a dispute over the spirit of the game, can hold up pages of media concern and political consideration. Now, for those of you who aren't Australian or English, or for that matter, are Australian and English and don't care at all about cricket and don't know anything about it, uh, this international spat, this this argument about the laws of the game, all revolved around an event that happened in a cricket match in England or probably about 10 days ago now. And so we're going to try to explain what happened briefly, for those of you who don't know or care about cricket. But it's because underneath this discussion, underneath this sort of controversy, is the question about spirit and law, about the spirit of a game and the laws of a game. And there's something for us to learn and ponder about the nature of laws and spirit. And that's what we'll get to eventually. But Philip, see if you can explain for those who aren't so au fait with the game and its laws, what happened? Well, what happened was... A batsman was considered out. When you're out, of course, you you cease batting. When a batsman is considered out by the technicalities of the laws, but who was considered not out by the spirit of the game. He made a technical error, and he had to pay the price for it. Now, there are seven ways I understand a batsman can get out, and most Australians and British people couldn't tell you all seven because there are some very technical ways you can get out in batting in cricket. Uh, this was one called stumping, which is not one of the technical ones, but it still has its technicalities because you can't be stumped when the ball is considered to be dead. The ball is considered dead when the bowl has happened and we're waiting to set the game up again or the end of a bowler's um, time bowling the ball. At the, at a, it is very difficult to explain, isn't it? The rules of cricket are very complicated. But after a bowler's bowled six times, then he's relieved and another bowler comes on. But in between those two bowlers, the ball is considered dead. Well, this was one of those moments where one bowler had stopped, the next bowler hadn't started, but the umpire hadn't declared the ball dead. And so the Australian wicketkeeper, he knocked the stumps over. He stumped the batsman. The batsman, he thought the ball was dead. And so he'd stepped outside across the line where he shouldn't have stepped. Was the ball dead or not? Technically, it was not dead. So he was out. 
But he wasn't actually stepping over the line in order to gain any advantage. He actually thought the ball was dead, and so he was going for a little wander. Perfectly normal if the ball had been declared dead. It's just a question of whether it was declared dead or not. And for dear listeners who who don't actually watch games... They might be dead by now, Philip, if you keep this going much longer. I see. Well, <laughs> the, the other thing I want to say was... It's not that anybody says, the ball is now dead. It's just that the umpires just walk away. There's a convention. The batsman will sometimes look at the umpire or at the opposing fieldsman, the opposing wicketkeeper, and there'll be a nod, there'll be an understanding. Okay, we've stopped playing now. We can we can just reset before the next play happens. It's a wink and a nod, isn't it? It is a little bit like that. And because the wink and the nod didn't happen... In one sense, the Australian fieldsman was perfectly within his rights, according to the laws of the game, to run him out. But the Englishmen, of course, because there was so much riding on all of this, were outraged that it, it was against the spirit of the game. And the, the idea of the spirit of cricket was invoked, that old adage that it's just not cricket. <laughs> yes. Cricket is the only sport I know where it is just not cricket. It's a game that's considered to be highly civilised. There's no seemingly contact. It's not a contact sport. It's a game of civility played amongst gentlemen. That's its kind of ethos, its heritage, its mythology. And, of course, it's not so much like that these days because games evolve and change and games have all kinds of functions within a group of people. And the game of cricket, originating in this sense of fair play, a sense of gentlemanly competition... A well-played, sir, you say to the opposing team as they play a good shot, as a sense of genteel civility between people, of good relationships, and of that all being stimulated by healthy competition. Yes, I was always raised to applaud both sides if they played a good shot. As a spectator, you don't just applaud your own side. <laughs> it's a it's a very civilised thing to watch, even. And I have to say, at this point, it's so much like golf in the same way, just to bring another sport into it. Originating in the same part of the world, a game what, where Scotland? you... <laughs> where it's part of the culture and civility of the game that you congratulate your opponent, you're pleased with your opponent's play, um, and you do still see this in the culture of golf, that there's a sense that... The game is bigger than winning and losing. And it's not a contact sport. Mm, Same sort of thing. Yes. And there are honourable things like counting the score. You shouldn't be checking up on each other's count. It's assumed that if you said, I took four strokes on that hole, Mm. that's what you did. In fact, there's a very famous incident in golfing history, and we're getting slightly off the point, but a very famous incident where uh, one of the great golfers, I believe it was Bobby Jones, um, accidentally moved his ball as he was preparing to play it. He said to his opponent, I accidentally moved my ball. That's a penalty. Took the penalty. No one saw. Um, Mm. It was only because he saw it and he called it on himself, as all golfers would and should. Should. Um, And that penalty ended up costing him uh, the tournament. It was one of the major tournaments. And afterwards, uh, he was quizzed on this by a journalist and said, look, that's a... That was an act of great nobility and sportsmanship. And, and Bobby Jones said, well, what, did, what do you expect to do? Congratulate me for not robbing a bank? I mean, <laughs> of course yes. I'm going to call it. It's, yes. It was like, it'd be like robbing a bank if I, if yes. I cheated and won by cheating. That yes. wouldn't be the same thing. And if I had won and I'd known I'd cheated, I wouldn't have enjoyed the win. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how do the rules of a game like cricket or any game, how do they relate to what a game is for? Yes, there are several aspects. One, it's enjoyment. That's a big factor of a game. Another is it 
is a way of community relating to each other or communities relating to each other. Very important are team games to raise children in knowing how to treat each other with civility, with keeping the laws and the rules of a game, of learning to be honest and to be cooperative with each other. I remember playing one game where the umpire kept on saying not out, even though we were getting the batsmen out. It was it was very confusing. And in the end, we appealed to him. And he said, until you learn to appeal like gentlemen, I'm going to continue to say not out. <laughs> <laughs> Your we were, raucous, aggressive appealing. Yes. Was uh, oh, totally inappropriate. And I was being taught, we were being taught, to play in a gentlemanly fashion, which is a good thing to train young men to be. It's not quite the way the games have gone, though, and especially a game like cricket and like many games, golf included as well, of course, that have become professionalised. And the aim of the game, which is winning, has become much more than just winning. It's become about winning an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of prestige. When winning becomes not just the point of the game, like all games involve winning, but the sole point or the main point of the game, those social purposes of the game fall into the background in a way. Well, even winning. Winning is the point of the game when you're inside the game, but it's not the point of playing the game. You play the game for pleasure, for fun, for social interaction. Inside the game, yes, you play to win, but even that is not necessarily the case. The backyard cricket rules were things like you can't get out on the first ball. (laughs) which defeats the purpose of winning. But it's said that, you know, everyone has a chance of having a bat here. And And everybody gets a second chance. Everybody gets a second chance if you make the mistake on the first ball. You haven't had a real chance if you got out first ball. So there's a sense that there's more to the game than just winning. There's the enjoyment of the game and giving everybody a chance. Now, at an elite level, international level, no, you can't be playing it like that. You are paying playing to win, but when that is the sole aim, win at all costs, that's bad news because that sense of the spirit of the game, so to speak, the gentlemanliness, the honesty gets thrown out. Add to it the money as you were just raising then. Yes, add to it the professionalism. Temptations to cheat become great. When winning gives you a bonus in your pay packet, then that changes the the level of uh, passion for winning, as it's meant to by the capitalists, but it then tempts people to cheat. And we've had some notorious cheating done in international cricket. It tempts people to gamble because money is one of our motivators. And so there are people who have thrown cricket games so that their bookies can make big money and give them immoral earnings. Yeah, it changes the very nature of the game itself once professionalism enters into any sport. If I become famous by winning, I can get advertisers to use me. So enormous amounts of money hang on a particular performance. It's no longer a game. At best, it's an entertainment. And at that level, cricket is killing itself because the more entertaining forms, 2020 overs, are undermining the traditional forms of the five-day test match. And there's only two or three nations which can now play five-day test matches because so many of the top-line cricketers want to make more money as entertainers. I guess the question is, what does all this have to do with Christianity and the gospel? What's it got to do with the spirit and the law? Oh, it's got a lot to do with it. 
much as you and I love talking about cricket together, and much as some of our listeners actually are enjoying us struggling to explain <laughs> cricket, it actually has serious implications. You see, materialism and the free enterprise capitalism of materialism has governed the activities of our community to our detriment. And we need to see the detrimental consequences of encouraging greed and covetousness within our society. The rules of cricket have been changed to fit in with the media who are in control of the games of cricket because they are the ones bringing the money. The advertisers are the ones bringing So we get the gambling advertisers, which is just encouraging gambling is so bad. The media will not allow minor nations to play proper test cricket against the major nations because they can't get a big enough audience. And so they're controlling who plays which game when. It changes the heart and disposition of the ways in which people are playing the game. And so a thing of pleasure has become a thing of business. And while that means we get better television coverage and other things of that nature, we really are changing our culture for money. And Christianity has higher values than money. We are concerned about love and community and friendship, of which games are an expression and a contributing expression. Money isn't. Greed isn't. Capitalism in this character isn't. And it's sad to see a game like golf, like cricket, being so distorted by the pursuit of money. Which it certainly is. And interestingly too, our whole discussion and awareness of these issues is distorted by money. So the conflict between the two nations is stoked and spread and ignited through the media. And if the the reason that the media leads with this in the opening of the news or in the front page of the papers or it comes into our social media feeds is because people love conflict and conflict gets eyeballs and eyeballs gets advertising. In a sense, the fact that it's been all over our discussion is also driven by capitalism in that sense in that the more that the media can promote conflict and say that there's a controversy and talk about it every night and get everyone riled up, the more people watch and the more money they earn. Yes, and the fewer people actually play games. Because that's what we do now. We just watch. We just watch. Um, That's where it's provided for us. Take, for example, lawn bowls. Uh, Most dangerous sport in the world. So they say, although I think croquet could be equally dangerous. I think more people die on the bowling green even than on the croquet green. Yes, well... Uh, But, see, lawn bowls is, again, one of these community activities. But the decline in the lawn bowls playing has been considerable. So the newspapers I saw the other day said that over the last 40 years, no new clubs have been established in the last 15 years, but the number of bowling clubs in Sydney has halved. In every suburb of Sydney, there used to be a bowling club. There isn't any more. Because they're being closed and their lands, very often good land, good flat land to build high rise on, is being sold off and fewer and fewer people are actually playing. Now we've got more old people than we've ever had before because life expectancy has increased. But bowling, which I may confess I've never actually been involved in myself. I was going to say, Philip, it's because people like you uh, are in here doing podcasts instead of being off out there bowling like you should be. (laughs) 
It always struck me as one of the very nice community activities that people are involved in, both men and women playing together a lovely game. But fashions come, you know, basketball is more common these days, not amongst the geriatrics, but basketball is more <laughs> common than, than bowl. But nonetheless, it's symptomatic of what is happening in a society that is becoming disconnected. Yeah. Now, you see, Andrew Lee, who's was a professor of economics at, uh, in Canberra and is now a parliamentarian, his PhD over in Harvard University under Mr Putman has shown social capital is being diminished by people not being connected in their communities anymore. Well, there are lots of ways people are connected in communities, but one of them is playing games together. But materialism and professionalism in sport is part of, not the total, but part of the problem of communities not playing anymore. And a community that doesn't play together doesn't stay together. There has been an extraordinary explosion in the marketing of sport as a product yes. in the last 40 years, which kind of directly parallels the decline in sport as an activity, as something you participate in, because it's marketed to you and you consume it as something that entertains you and you watch it on TV or you go to the games and that becomes who you are. You become a fan rather than a participant. Yes. And it's individualism. I mean, there's a corporate individualism. I'm a supporter of such and such a club. But the club is not the local community club anymore. It's you, a global franchise. It's a global franchise. And people can play for one club and then another club offers them more money. So they change. There's no loyalty really in the club. It's not a community like that. It's an individualism that is being expressed. And it's not good for our society. Let's get back to the spirit and the law, because that was the kind of other Christian angle in this whole uh, strange discussion, the invocation of the idea of the spirit of cricket, that there's something unwritten that somehow expresses the heart or values of cricket that was transgressed in this incident. And that's a very Christian idea. In fact, I'm sure it's come from Christianity, the idea of the spirit of the game as opposed to the laws of the game. Yeah. What has happened is the passage which really kicks off this whole discussion of spirit and law, which I, I can't be certain because I don't know everything. In fact, I don't know that much. Um, but I don't know of any discussion of spirit and law that occurs before the New Testament. It's 2 Corinthians 3 that really kicks off the passage. But the word spirit has changed its meaning. So people talk of themselves as being very spiritual, but it's got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of the law is the kind of the reason for the law. It's the intent of the law. It's the purpose of the law rather than the actual wording of the law that is being spoken of. So the spirit is the intention of the law, the vibe of the law, as that great Australian movie um, the castle. The castle had it. It's the vibe of the constitution. I can't pinpoint where it says it anywhere, but it's just... It's lurking in there somewhere. It's lurking in there. It's the intentions, the meaning behind everything kind of law. That's the meaning. Of the, that's not what 2 Corinthians 3 is about when it contrasts spirit and letter. People still do the contrast, spirit and letter, but the spirit you're talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit has given the law in the first place so that 
in Romans 7, it actually says the law is spiritual, which I think people would find difficult to understand today. That's because the Holy Spirit gives us the law and the prophecies of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, the prophecies of the Old Testament is that the coming of the Spirit, which is a title of a book I've heard of recently, that the coming of the Spirit actually is going to come into the hearts of God's people so that they will want to keep the law, so that they will be moved by the Spirit to be obedient to the law. And so the real contrast of the Spirit versus the letter that we have in 2 Corinthians is that these are the people who, by the the Spirit of the living God, and now have the law of God, not in tablets of stone, but written on their hearts, so that they will now be be working by the Spirit in obedience to the law, for it's the Spirit that gives life. Whereas the law without the Spirit condemns us, because that is what the law does. What does it mean to have the law then, but without the Spirit? Well, in one sense you can't because it is the Spirit of God that gives the law. But in another sense you can because the law is written on the tablets of stone to pick up the Exodus image, but it's not in your heart. You do not want to keep the law. And because you do not want to keep the law, while you may see the law is there on the tablets of stone, you'll be working to avoid its implications. You'll be looking for loopholes. You'll be quarrelling over uh, the dear details of the law because it's only as the Spirit comes into your heart that you want to keep the law and therefore you will no longer look for loopholes but actually look for different ways that you can live by the law. Now you're talking there about the problem that comes up often in the New Testament, the problem of Pharisaic kind of approaches to the law that seeks to, as you say, domesticate it, seeks to keep it at bay, almost seeks to kind of fence the law in and make it achievable and kind of uh, doable within our kind of framework that, that tries to keep the law at bay in a sense rather than to dig into what the law is really about. Yes, because the law condemns me. So I've got to kind of minimise what the law requires so as to minimise the condemnation. that the, the law rightly points to my failures. And so for me to kind of be able to live with the law of God and not be condemned by the law of God, I've got to, as you say, domesticate it somehow. I've got to find ways around loopholes, minimising its implications for my life. And the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is knowing the forgiveness that comes through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We know the law condemns us. We know that. But we know that condemnation has now been met in the atoning work of Christ. And more, the risen Christ now puts his spirit within us so that we seek to be obedient to the law. We rejoice in the law. We see the value and the goodness of the law. So that the spirit who wrote the law is now resident in us. And we have, as, as he says there in Romans 8, the mind of the spirit, our mind set on the things of the spirit, the spirit who wrote the law, whose mind gave rise to the law, that's now in our mind. And that's why, in a sense, the, the Christian impulse 
under the power of the Spirit and with the Spirit within us is to read the Old Testament law, to see what the Spirit wrote through the Old Testament law, and to drive towards its intention, its rationale, what it was always seeking to um, promote and and express, that is, love of neighbour and love of God. And so in the New Testament, under the Spirit, we don't keep the Old Testament law in quite the same way because the Spirit who wrote the law is now in our hearts. Yes, and that has all kinds of implications for us as Christians and as Christian world, but also as a great illustration for the failure of the non-Christian world. The Tax Act of Australia is massive, 10 or 11 volumes of thousands of pages. That's because Australians don't want to pay tax. So the legislation keeps on increasing to, to, to close off loopholes. And we have a whole industry of very clever people who are working overtime to try and, I'll say, minimise tax because that's legal, uh, avoid tax, I can't say because that's illegal. But even the pharisaic distinction between minimising and avoiding is fairly... It just shows the problem, doesn't it? It just says, where can I draw the line so that I can legally <laughs> avoid the tax? Because if Australians wanted to pay tax... If Australians love their nation and their community and their neighbour enough to want to pay, if Australians trusted their governments enough to be trusting them to, to, to look after the welfare of society, the Tax Act would be one page. And it wouldn't fill the whole page. All you'd need to say is something like, please make donations to the government to be able to do the job of caring for the community. Now, when you hear that, you think, yeah, that's ridiculous, that's never going to happen. And I agree with you, it's never going to happen. But it does happen. It happens in churches all over the world. Because we invite people to make donations for the welfare of the church. There's no requirement. It's not like a golf club where you pay your annual fees. It's a free how much you give. You give as much or as little as you feel that you want to do. And through that... Churches all over the world are funded. That's because people want to give. That raises the whole issue of trying to change society by legislation. You can't do it. The government keeps making legislation to change society and the police and the courts implement that legislation. But what you need are people's hearts changed. And that comes from the gospel. People's hearts change that they want to do what the law says so that they'll play golf and acknowledge when they've moved the ball and the nobody sees, but they'll still do that which is right because within their very moral fibre as beings, they want to do the right thing. That comes from gospel preaching. And you remove gospel preaching from the public square you will undermine the thing that makes law work. Now, we're branching off into deep waters here, and perhaps this is a discussion to pursue at another time, but you're certainly right that within the history of, of Western civilization, modern Western civilization, whether in Australia or in the US and other places, it's acknowledged not just by Christians, but by, by other social and cultural critics and historians, that a critical factor in the in the functionality of Western civilization is not just that we have laws that are made by parliament 
and we have a judiciary or executive branch that enforces those laws, but that you have a people whose cultural morality and values and religious conviction is such that they want those laws and seek as a culture to embrace them. And that's not because they understand the spirit of the law, but because they understand the Holy Spirit. You can see what the government wants to do, but if you don't want to do it, you'll find loopholes. It's one of the great problems that American political theorists on both sides of of their uh, spectrum are grappling with at present with the, the fight that Americans are having over their constitution. The constitution only works as a constitution in, in the context at which it was framed as well, where you have a people who have the moral values and culture and civility, in that sense, the Christian spirit, to be able to make a constitution like that work. Yes. And as that has evaporated, so has the effectiveness of their constitution. It's the Christian spirit, not the spirit of the law. But within Christianity, of course, the law of God is the spirit given. That's why the law is spiritual. What does this mean for Johnny Besto? What do we say about the stumping of Johnny Besto? <laughs> well, hypocrisy reigns extreme. It does. <laughs> you know, and so immediately people raced out to look over the history of uh, Johnny Besto to find out whether he as a wicketkeeper had tried to do the same thing, and they found instances of that. And There's also a degree of hypocrisy or, or strangeness about demanding that the other side... Follows the follow the spirit of the game. <laughs> yes. You've got to follow the spirit of the game, otherwise we'll lose. Like, yes, surely yes. the spirit of the game on the English part would have been to say, well, chaps, that wasn't cricket. You really shouldn't have done that. But look, we inhabit the spirit of the game, and so we're going to graciously lose and not complain because we follow the spirit of cricket. Surely that would have been the response. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the rule was he was clearly out. You know, the Australians would play the spirit of the game against the rule on other occasions. And, you know, they're pointing back to the 1930s and the terrible time when England destroyed the spirit of the game by creating body line bowling. If you're not a cricketer, don't worry about it. You don't need to know the details. It's just the typical hypocrisy of legalists. Legalists are always hypocrites. That's the character of it. And it's so classic in cricket that the legalists have terrible hypocrisy because the intimidatory bowling that marked body line, it was a little bit more complicated than just intimidation, but that was an element of it. It's something Australians have been doing for some time now. And the old days in which the batsmen who were really tail-enders, as we call them, the ones who really were bowlers but had to bat, uh, they didn't bowl intimidatorily, bounces against them. But these days, thanks to Australian fast bowling, we do it gladly. And that's all hypocrisy. So rule-based relationships, if you're going to go that way, nearly always degenerate into legalism and hypocrisy. Yes. And when you put money and prestige and the rest into it, uh, frankly, the idea that you're going to be appealing to the civility of a game that has lost all civility is a nonsense. Because the civility of the game and the values that underpinned that were, in the end, the values of Christianity. They were the values yes. of graciousness, of, of the other person being as important as you are, if not more so, 
of there being a larger intent in our relationships together that was more important than me and my success. And there's more to life than cricket. Well, there is more to life than cricket. I know some of our listeners will find that difficult to believe. But, <laughs> but the important thing is that we're people of the Holy Spirit who long and love God's law, as David does in the Psalms, who meditate on it and long to put it into practice because the Spirit who wrote the law is in our hearts. And that's the kind of approach we really bring to all laws and all aspects of our lives. We want to long to love other people and do so in relationship with them. Which means we'll enjoy games. Exactly. Rather than think that this is the Third World War. Well, we need to pray then, Philip, about our own spirits and our obedience to the law in our own hearts before we cast stones at other people for not doing so. That's a good idea. Why don't you lead us? I will in just a moment. I just want to say before we finish, thanks everyone for being here once again at Two Ways News. And please get in touch and send us your emails and comments and thoughts and questions. The idea of talking about Johnny Bestow and the spirit and the law of cricket actually came from one of you, dear listeners, who, who wrote saying, wouldn't that be a fun thing to talk about? And so thanks for that prompt. Um, that was from Jeff, so thanks, Jeff, for that. Uh, but do get in touch. You can send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com. But how about we pray? Heavenly Father, we are so prone uh, to be selfish and to turn in on ourselves. We're prone to keep you at bay and not to love you and your law. And by nature, Father, we find ourselves becoming hypocrites and legalists and lawbreakers and in the end lawless. But Father, you give us your spirit so graciously through the Lord Jesus Christ. You change our hearts and pour into our hearts a love for you and of our neighbour that always was the intent of the law. And Father, so we pray you would work in our hearts to keep that spiritual law, that eternal law that you give us of loving you and our neighbour. And we pray that we would preach the gospel to the world around us and pray for them that your spirit might work in their hearts as well. And we thank you, Father, for all that you do for us through the Lord Jesus who gave us his spirit. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.